Thank you for downloading the Bristol Lectures podcast, brought to you by the University of the West of England. In this podcast, we are joined by Ruth Hunt, Chief Executive of Stonewall. Good evening, everyone. My name is Vanessa Moon. I'm Director of International Executive Search Firm Moon Moon Consulting, and I'm also an advisory board member of the Faculty of Business and Law for the Business School here. We've got a very long established relationship with UWE and delighted to support this Distinguished Address series. And for me, these talks provide a fascinating insight into different businesses. So they range from not-for-profit, private and listed organisations. And I've found the speakers offer fascinating and candid look inside their organisations. I'd like to thank Olivia for her showcase for AdAid, an app with a difference. So it was fantastic. So this evening, I've got the great privilege to introduce Ruth Hunt, Chief Executive from Stonewall, to be our keynote speaker. I first heard Ruth speak in 2017 when she came to Bristol to speak to the Confederation of British Industry, and I was struck by her passion and candour, which I'm sure we will see tonight. Ruth is Chief Executive of Stonewall, and for those who don't know Stonewall, they were founded in 1989 by a small group of people who have been active in the struggle against Section 28 of the Local Government Act. Ruth joined them in 2014 and became Chief Executive later that year. In just over four years, she has created a 50% increase in the charity's income, has steadily grown its structure, taking the team from 70 to 160 employees, and also secured Stonewall's place as the leading lesbian, gay, bi and trans equality charity. Ruth has redefined Stonewall's role as a charity, from one that enables change to one that empowers others to make change happen. And under her leadership, Stonewall's programmes and the way they are delivered have been refined to ensure they create sustainable, powerful grassroots activism, both in the UK and abroad. I think we need people with great vision, compassion and clarity in this world. And I know that you will see this tonight as Ruth talks about achieving social change in a climate of great uncertainty. So please join me in welcoming Ruth to speak. Am I on? Yes, I'm on. Thank you all very much for inviting me here this evening and for coming. It's a cold and dark night. <coughs> in February, and I'm sure there are many, many other things you could be doing. So thank you for choosing to be here with me today. Um, I should give you some disclaimers to start with. For those of you who who don't know me, I I don't read from a script, um, mainly because I'm very dyslexic and it doesn't work very well. So I've learned to to talk over the years. I think my junior Catholic education of Bible rhetoric sounds you in good stead when learning how to speak. Um, but it also means that uh, what I say is not always um, able to be predicted, which causes the comms team at Stonewall great distress and anxiety. But, you know, that's, that's what they have to put up with. I, for those of you who want um, top ten tips on how to be nice to gay people, that's not what you're going to get today. Um, there's, a, there's a great Stonewall website where you can download all that information if you want to know the kind of technical details on what to do. I'll give you a bit of that. But what I'm mainly going to be talking about today is my journey, a little bit about my journey and how my career has come about, and how that's kind of dovetailed with what can be described as the 
the LGBT rights movement and, and how that's kind of come along too and how I've joined. And, and I'm sorry, Vanessa, I have to kind of slightly correct. What, what, no, don't worry. It'll be someone at Stonewall who told you wrong. I actually started at Stonewall in 2005 as a little baby dyke um, with a number three haircut and, and baggy jeans and 20 Marlboro lights and have over the last 14 years held eight different roles at Stonewall, culminating in becoming CEO in 2014. So this is my, my fifth year as CEO. And the bit you said about growth is completely right, and, and that's down to me. But um, I, did, I did do some, some other stuff. So I've kind of seen it from, from a number of different angles, and I will be talking about that in detail. And as Vanessa said, Stonewall started 30 years ago this year. This is our 30th, 30th birthday. And I think that the objectives in those days were to create a movement that would be entirely committed to achieving legal change. It was set up by Ian McKellen, Michael Cashman, Lisa Power and others around Ian McKellen's dining room table. And Section 28, I just want to give some context to Section 28, because for some of you, you weren't born then. Section 28 was a piece of legislation that prevented the promotion of homosexuality in schools. Exactly the type of legislation we are now seeing introduced in Russia that causes us all to be quite so outraged is exactly the legislation we were introducing 30 years ago. And where did this come from? This came from a time where, uh, particularly in the 50s and beyond and before that, gay men were utterly criminalised for same-sex attraction, were actively persecuted by the police, were caught on dubious charges and charged with things that they hadn't done, and lived a life in terms of the law and in terms of how the state saw them as people who were completely and utterly unallowed, not allowed to be part of um, civil society. Lesbians were utterly dismissed, uh, were generally regarded as having mental health issues, hysterical, unwell, that they didn't love their husbands enough. It was a community who were excluded. Now, if we had three hours, I would go way back and tell you that that wasn't always the case. So the Romans loved their same-sex loving, okay? Um, there's plenty of evidence in the whole of history of same-sex attraction. The Restoration period, for those of you who know um, Earl of Rochester and, and Swift and the literature from those days, plenty of sex going on between same-sex couples then. All arguably, Henry VIII needed a marriage, closed down the monasteries, easy to accuse monks of being basically at it all the time with each other. That was the kind of the start of anxiety about same-sex attraction in, in modern England, modern in the last five centuries, if you like. And the Victorian era. Syphilis really freaked people out. Victorians got a bit twitched about sex. Who are we going to get twitched by? We're going to get twitched by same-sex attraction. Now, the historians in the room will slightly take issue with my rather neat summary of history of sexuality. But I've got the floor, so, you know. Um, and what happened, of course, so, so in the 50s and 60s, completely illegal and unlawful. The 70s became a lot more laid back. The 80s, of course, HIV came along. And HIV decimated the community, absolutely decimated the community. And the state was very, very slow to respond. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of anxiety. And a lot of lesbian, gay, bi and trans people came together and ran those services themselves. So my partner, who is um, older than me, I won't say her age because we're podcasting, um, <laughs> buddied as a student. So when she was 18 and 19, she was buddying with men who went on to die. So at 21, she was seeing men die who she'd been volunteering with, went on to set up helplines and voluntary and volunteer systems. The, the community responded and the state responded with fear and said, we're a bit scared about this. Why don't we ban books? 
because everybody knows the best way of dealing with fear is to ban books. It's always a good book. So the book that was banned is a book called Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin, which is a really, really boring book. And that's a real shame, because when you have a movement that's sparked by something like that, you want it to be a really sexy thing that sparks it. Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin, slightly dull, um, goes on for a long time. Jenny Lives with Eric, her boyfriend, his, his boyfriend, Martin. And midway through that book, Jenny is seen having what we call in Wales a morning kutch, with Eric and Martin, and they've only got their pyjamas on. And it was considered to be so singularly dangerous that an entire generation would become rampant homosexuals by reading this book. The decision was made to ban this book. I was nine years old at the time, and I was being force-fed a diet of Cinderella, um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, um, every Rapunzel, all of that going. And despite that diet of pure, saccharine, pink princesses, I still became a rampant homosexual, and <laughs> lots of people who read some gay stuff became straight. So I think we can, we can comfortably conclude, 30 years on, that books don't make you gay, but that doesn't stop people worrying and being scared. And it's always a warning bell when people start banning books that you have to be concerned. For the trans movement, there was something similar going on. People were able to transition um, with relative ease if they had money or they had status or they had some access to those sort of things. A woman took her husband to court to divorce and the judge said, you're not really a woman, your marriage is completely invalidated and thus the rights that were loosely held by trans people completely fell away. But the idea that just because um, some journalists in North London have worked out that trans women exist, therefore trans women are a new thing, is a bit of a misnomer. Trans people have existed for as long as lesbian, gay and bisexual people. Uh, so Stonewall was set up to do that. So I was nine years old, I was at school, um, I learnt a lot about um, God and Jesus, who I still have a huge amount of respect for. I do have faith. That's often far more controversial than, than me being gay. Um, so I come out about that quite early on, so you can all be angry with me about that during the questions rather than <laughs> angry with me about sexual orientation. And uh, I didn't learn much about long division, but it was okay. We kind of, we kind of did other stuff. And I was a bright kid. And I was a bright kid growing up in Cardiff with stories and with books. And my parents were very, very keen that my brother and I did the best we possibly could and did well. And at 13, I realised that I liked girls more than I liked boys, which is quite a confusing time to like anything. And boys generally at 13 are idiots. So I, I don't really understand why 13-year-old girls generally are not all gay, because I think... <laughs> I think they would have, we'd, they'd have a much better time. But, but apparently I was, I was quite unique in my experience at 13 of, of being attracted to girls. And it was a very hard time to come out. So in 1993, um, there wasn't much going on. So I went to Cardiff Library and I read The Well of Loneliness and Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. Now, for anyone in the audience who knows The Well of Loneliness and Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, can I give you a top tip? Do not give a 13-year-old girl who is exploring her sexuality the well of loneliness and oranges are not the only fruit, because it's pretty dark. And um, spoilers, it doesn't end well, uh, certainly in the well of loneliness. So, and then I read a lot of really badly written lesbian detective fiction, which <laughs> Cardiff Library had shelves of this lesbian detective fiction. So, so that, that becomes your role model. That's what you draw from. That, Cagney and Lacey, Hill Street Blues, they become your kind of moral compass in the absence of anything else. And Stonewall was campaigning for equal age of consent, gays in the military, very, very hard battles. And there's a really famous, um, famous in Stonewall terms, clip of Angela Mason, who was CEO at the time, being utterly outraged about a little series that had just come on Channel 4 called Queer as Folk. And Queer as Folk 
which we now think of with love and fondness. <coughs> Opening scene has a young boy who's 15 years old basically doing something that would make your hair curl with an older man right at the time Stonewall was campaigning for Age of Consent. And it was a real indication of Stonewall saying that was a terrible thing to be broadcast, of how Stonewall had to work. Stonewall was running a campaign that was all about reassuring the people in power who were by and large heterosexual that it, gay was okay. We were completely normal. We were just like you. We wanted to get married, pay our taxes, have kids. It was what we would describe as a purely assimilationist agenda. Stonewall relentlessly pursued an assimilationist agenda. And history will judge whether that was the right thing. But by 2014, we had the single best legislation in the world for lesbian, gay and bi people. But we also had created a movement that was very preoccupied with our own individual rights. And I would argue that something that was created during the HIV time, a time of solidarity and working with each other, went away a little bit during that time. So what am I doing? Well, I'm... I went to university. My parents were very, very anxious about me telling anyone I was gay in case I changed my mind and that they were worried that I wouldn't get a job. And for two people who'd worked very hard in kind of vocational industries, whose daughter had been told she was clever enough to go to Oxford and was just going to throw it all away and was really jeopardising everything, they were really frightened. And after a lot of therapy, I have a lot of sympathy for that position. But I'm 38 and a half now and it's taken me that long, if I'm honest. It takes a long time. When you're told that who you are and how you feel is wrong, that leaves a mark. It leaves a mark. And we can talk at length about disproportionate mental health impacts on LGBT communities. And da, 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 da. If you are bought and thought to be full of shame, it takes a huge amount of resilience and resistance to counteract that narrative. And when Beth Jordash on Brookside is your first lesbian ever, kisses a girl and then kills her dad. <laughs> Beth Jordash, you've got the well of loneliness, and you've got your dad a bit worried that everyone's going to hate you and never give you a job. That's a bit tough. It's a bit tough. But I went to university, and I was president of my student union, and, and, and did well. I was a campaigner. I worked hard. I wasn't as bright as I was supposed to be, but I did all right, and I was, I was a good kid. And... When I was president of the Student Union, I got lots of phone calls, lots of phone calls from the big four, the big five. Hi, you're president of Oxford University Students' Union. You, you need to work for us. And I looked at myself and I thought, you will never want me to work for you. You will not want someone like me. Number three haircut, baggy jeans, Diet Coke, Stadartois. I thought, you will never want me. And what began at 18, 19, 20, 21 is something that I think persists probably even today, ruling ourselves out of different options and opportunities. They won't want me. I'm not like them. I don't think like them. I don't work like them. And I think there's a lot that particularly affects young people today of thinking, I am not the right fit for you. And I think it's something that's really important for us to remember while we think about diversity and inclusion and these words that don't mean very much. We are quite capable of ruling ourselves out. Now, on reflection, I think McKinsey's would have probably whooped me into shape, but I would not be the person you see before you today. And a lot of what people used to say to me is, we don't mind you sleeping with women, but do you have to be so gay about it? <laughs> really kind of like, we get, we get that you can't help that bit, but why do you have to be quite so? 
And certainly when I was a junior member of staff in Stonewall working up, I certainly felt very strongly that I needed to be more feminine in order to be acceptable to the people we were trying to influence. Don't frighten the ministers. Don't frighten the foreign office. Don't frighten the people who are trying to influence. Because we have blouses. Can we think about piercings? And you just soften the hair a little bit. And it took me a while to learn to articulate that actually authenticity is not just about being able to belong to your orientation. It's also about where you feel good and how you feel good. And after I was told by a number of mentors to start accessorizing, I started buying ties. Because there's something about a tie that just gives, gives me a little bit of a swagger and makes me feel good. And that's okay. And I think we should all be allowed to feel a little bit good sometimes. And I'm going to come back to that in a moment. So I came into Stonewall, did this in a very, what I would describe as an assimilationist movement. And when I took over in 2014, we'd had same-sex marriage. And I was very aware that there were whole sections of the LGBT plus community, the LGBTQ community, there's lots of different ways of describing, who didn't feel reflected in that assimilationist campaign, who felt that they had been left behind. And one of the things that I was determined to do was to widen out Stonewall and widen out Stonewall's perspective. But between 2005 and 2014, when I was working there, under, with amazing staff and under an amazing CEO, Stonewall professionalized in ways that you rarely see in a campaigning and civil rights movement. So what did we do? We worked with employers. You know, we now work with 750 employers. And we very gently take them on a journey. And we go in to see some of them, and they say, well, we don't have any gay staff, so we don't really need you. And I say, Archbishop of Canterbury, you do have gay staff. <laughs> and are going to work together on this. And then we see another organisation, they go, no, look, we're really into this stuff. We've got an LGBT network and the gay stuff, they go to the pub every Friday and talk about how hard it is to be gay. And I know that, they, you know, they do a lot of welfare. And we go, okay, there's, there's another stage beyond this. Third stage of an organisation says, well, we've got a HR officer now and they're ready to do the Workplace Equality Index, but the LGBT staff network's going to do a lot of it. And that's the kind of place most organisations are at. And we're nudging. And what we realised is that people should pay for that because it's an expertise and a service. People value it more when they pay for it, so we understood the nature of capitalism. And we understood the absolute importance of generating unrestricted income for ourselves. And that's what Stonewall did. You know, we have never relied on public funds, mainly because we were never offered them. So it became a really easy principle. <laughs> Stonewall takes no public funds, which I now slightly regret, but we do not take unrestricted funds. We take donations, people give us £10 a month, um, people give us £100 a month and people buy our services. We work with 2,000 schools and we work with two teachers and we train them and we get them to understand and they train all the teachers in their school and we're there behind them and we support them and we work with lots of young people and we do empowerment programs and leadership programs and role model programs. and all So we try in every way we can to change the way in which people do things. But what we've also done is said, and you have to understand that not all gay people look like this or think like this. And not all lesbians look like this. And not all bi people, and bi people do exist and do experience discrimination from within the lesbian and gay community. And we need to talk about that. And we need to talk about the racism within the LGBT community. And we need to acknowledge that when a young black man goes on Grinder for the first time, the first thing he'll see is no blacks. And he will swipe and have to swipe and swipe until he finds someone who's not racist. We have to talk about those difficult things. We have to talk about mental health in our own communities. And we have to, with utter conviction and without equivocation, be absolutely standing by the side of our trans siblings and saying that we are with you and for you and we acknowledge your identity and your existence. And people go, well, that's really uncomfortable. We quite liked it when it was a bit more neat. 
But that denies the fact that at every legislative change, we've had very difficult discussions. I have sat in very difficult rooms talking about why Catholic adoption agencies should be accepting of same-sex couples in their adoptions. I've had very difficult conversations about removing the word father from birth certificates so lesbian parents can be reflected on that birth certificate. We are not unfamiliar with difficult questions, but there's something very different happening now about how communities resolve some of those difficult questions and think about those difficult questions. And I think that what we found at Stonewall is that the, the, the thing that comes with that widening out of our base, that thinking differently, is that it has required us all to think a little bit differently about what change looks like and think differently about how we move the needle. And I think that that's come at a time when a generation is increasingly impatient with the message of, can you just be patient, everybody's on a journey. And I think a lot of the diversity and inclusion message, particularly since 2000 and something or other, the Equality Act 2010, has been a lot about telling people what they're not allowed to do. Don't use this word, don't say that, don't do this. It's been a lot about recruitment. It's been a lot about saying, well, we've looked at our group and we haven't got a Benetton advert, so we're gonna have to get a group of people in that looks a bit more like diverse. And people say to me all the time, yeah, well, we've got four black people, so we don't really think we've got a problem. <laughs> That's been the old way of thinking about diversity. And I think younger people are coming through now going, I am not going to wait for you to be woke. I am not going to wait for you to understand my non-binary identity. I'm not going to wait for you to understand that this is my gender presentation. Actually, I'm bright, I'm smart, I want this opportunity now. And that comes at a cost. That is not an easy deal. So please don't for a moment think that I'm endorsing that new strategic approach to change. Because at Stonewall, we have had to use very gentle hands for a very long time and a nudging change. We've had to say very gently, have you thought about it from this angle? I'm sorry, am I going too fast? That's okay. There are times when I take my tie off. I've been invited to Buckingham Palace um, for International Women's Day, and I know I will not feel brave enough to wear a tie in that space. I know I won't. And me and my partner were invited to a ball at Buckingham Palace that was white tie. And I have never had such a major existential crisis as that event. <laughs> I speak to big audiences, I do big stuff. My partner was like, it's the monarchy, who cares? I was like... No, this is not the time for your anti-disestablishment chat. <laughs> what are we actually going to wear? Because there's no way we were going to wear a dress. And tails would have looked like Lauren and Hardy. So what were we going to do? Like, what, what were we going to do? And we agonised over it. And then we wore our tuxes and we, were, we stood out and we pulled focus and people stared. And I thought, I'm letting down the Queen in this ambassador's event. And my partner was like, you are a fool to even be worrying about this. But even when you're really grown up and you think you've cracked this and you think you've mastered it, you still have those moments of anxiety and those moments of fear. And I think that there are, there are three things I've really learned about leadership and how we think about these things differently that I'd, that I'd really like to share with you, if that's okay. So the first is that when we talk about privilege and we talk about wanting what we want to be seen now for who we are now, and what we do is we create a dynamic and we go, well, I've got you, you know, you've got more privilege than me and you don't understand that I'm coming from a different space and you've not heard my experience and you've not heard this and you've not heard this and you've not heard this. What we're really talking about is power. And if we had really, if we could take diversity and inclusion back to the beginning, I would call it, let's talk about power. And there are moments in every context, in every setting, where I have the most power in the room and I know it. And I sit in that room 
and the race uh, BAME uh, people of colour network group from Stonewall comes in and they've prepared their agenda and they've had three meetings and they've got FaceTime with the CEO and they're going to bring up their key concerns and they're a little bit aggressive and shouty and they've prepared it and, had, and I have to go, I've got the power in this room. So how am I going to give away power at this moment? How am I going to make sure that I can sit back and create the space that's necessary for these people to say what they need to say? and to know that I've heard them. How can I use that? How can I share my power? How can I give away my power? But I also know that when I go into Buckingham Palace for the International Women's Day event next week, on my own, I'm going to have no power. And I know that there's going to be lots of women in that room who are confident with their swishy hair and their nice dresses and all their... Like, and I will need them to reach out to me and go, would you like to just come and talk to me for a moment? I'm profoundly introvert. I hate small talk. I'm crap at chat. I know that I'm going to have zero power in that space. I know that before I speak, people judge me. People look at me and expect me to be something that I'm not. People are surprised when I'm articulate. People are surprised when I can say stuff. I know I am counteracting those impressions all the time. There are times when I have zero power. There are times when I have a huge amount of power. And if we just thought about power differently, in every context that we exist, the battle for true inclusion would truly be won. Because if we recognise that people in a room sometimes need more space, more airtime, more capacity to think about things differently, and you have the power to give that away, that would change the dynamic. Instead, what we talk about is, have we got one of those on our group? That's how diverse we are. And the problem with the, that have we got one of those on our group is that we basically expect them to behave like us. So here's my second point. Diversity is not achieved by having a Benetton advert, a smorgasbord of different identities. What you do then is the person who is looking to you assimilates you and tries to replicate your leadership style because they know that that's what you'll value. And I know that in times of crisis, I really value people who get me. I really value people who will understand what I'm going to say before I finish saying it. I know that I'm going to like having the person in the room that says, you haven't screwed up, Ruth. It's all fine. What we just need to do is a little tinkering here and it's all going to be okay. I know the last person I want in that room is someone who's going to go, well, that was a screw up, Ruth. You've completely misjudged that. And let's think about it differently. When you are running an organisation, the reality is you do not want to have people around you who think differently. And therefore, the whole principle of diversity is utterly flawed. Because unless you are brave enough to say, I would like a different way of thinking in this room at this moment, your attempts to achieve diversity will never work. You will have your Benetton advert. But if people are forced to behave and think in a way that pleases you, you will have no disruption. And if there is no disruption to your leadership, there is no change and there is no point trying to attain diversity. You might as well appoint the five people who you like, who think like you. The risk of that, of course, is that your business, your operation, your team will utterly stagnate and you'll keep making mistakes and people will think you're wonderful and everybody will go through. And you can see the kind of things that are emerging now around vice-chancellors of universities, that that is disrupting. People are being challenged more about the bad decisions they make. Let's be open to that. Let's share the power and be open to that opportunity, but acknowledge that it's tricky and doesn't come easy at all. The second consequence of changing that is that you have to change how you work. So when Stonewall introduced trans inclusion, when Stonewall said, you know, I've said very clearly I want a third of our staff to be from um, black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds. Stonewall's a very white organisation. Historically, it's been a very white organisation. We've got a three-year work programme to change that. 
when trans people came in, I was like, well, don't worry, guys. Um, I've got this covered. I've been doing this for 14 years. I've got my stripes. I know exactly how to achieve social change. So I'm going to share that with you and teach you. And I'm going to create some posts and, and look at my table. You, you are so welcome around my table. Um, you are welcome. And uh, that's how woke I am. And what happened is trans stuff came in and went, well, we don't really like the way you did that. And we'd quite like to do it a different way. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm sorry, what? No, 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 no. I am opening the door to you uh, so you can learn from me about how to do this, yeah? It is deeply uncomfortable that when you create a truly diverse organisation, they will want to do things differently. And that, <laughs> that is the magic. And I, as a CEO, have find that very difficult because I know what I'm doing. Why would I change how I'm doing things? It has taken a huge amount of humility on my part to say, <coughs> okay, we might want to do these differently. And sometimes that experiment, that safe experiment being conducted by these new groups that are coming into Stonewall may not always work. And then I have to be really determined not to go, well, you know, I did, I did know that that wouldn't work. <laughs> if I am truly to create a fully inclusive organisation where people are able to be themselves and bring different thoughts and different ideas to the table, I have to accept that some of the old rules of doing things that I have deeply ingrained may have to go as well. And that is very difficult. That is a very difficult thing to realise. The third thing that I am really want to share with you today is that I think that there is something about a generation who are increasingly frustrated about the, the efforts they have to go to to be seen and heard. And I look back at some of the things that I experienced and I and I tolerated because I thought that was, that was coming to me that, would, that I'm now ashamed about. You know, we're going to pay you less because the budgets aren't quite as good. I know we're paying him more, but I tell you what, if it's all good at the end of the year, we'll give you a bonus. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, we're going to promote you because um, we don't think you're quite ready, but if you, if you kind of work hard, then maybe you'll be ready. Thank you very much. It took me quite a long time to go, actually, I'm bloody good at this. You've promoted me because, I, because you make me look, you, I, I make you look good. Um, we, took, we take a lot. I think we take a lot as women. I think we take a lot as minorities. We take a lot and we put up with it. I think there are people who are less putting up with it now. I think people are going, actually, no, I don't want to work here. I'm going to put on the internet the, my experience of that interview where you belittled me. I'm going to say this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to tweet that. I'm going to speak that. I'm going to say that. We mistake, however, anger for progress. And we think that anger means we're making a difference. And I think anger is incredibly important. And my therapist would tell you that anger should be, should be vocalised and shared. Do not mistake anger for change. Anger does not change people's minds, people's thoughts, people's approaches, people's attitudes. It just entrenches them further. And what is happening on social media right now is a doubling down of real anger that achieves nothing. So Stonewall's done some science behind this, because when we introduced trans, people, some people were very unhappy about it, some people were indifferent about it, some people were very happy about it. And what I did is I hunkered right down into the 300 profiles who really hated me. And I sort of sat there for a good six months reading everything that these people were saying. Ruth has betrayed lesbians, Ruth has done this, Ruth has done that, Ruth is awful, Ruth is terrible, Ruth is... Ruth is... And I was like, this must be what the world thinks. This must be what everybody is thinking. And we, we mapped it. And we're like, no, this is what these people think. There's these people here who've got some really interesting, reasonable questions that need to be answered at some point. There's these people who are so happy with what you're doing that they don't even care, and they're not even going to talk to you about it. 
And then we went, okay, so what are we going to do about this group who are really angry? And we took a step back from trans completely, and we looked at um, MAGA, make, make America Great Again. We looked at how um, MAGA tweets and how, how movements build in that way. And what we found is that there is no persuading people who strongly believe in their position. Even if they have plenty of counter-evidence, there's nothing on Twitter, social media, that will change their mind. You might be able to get one-on-one -on -one with them and have a conversation, but what Twitter does is reinforce and solidify someone's position. So anger breeds anger and contempt and toxicity. So we all just get really angry all the time with no movement. Okay, so that's a sign of where we're at as a, as a, as a movement, as a communication, so that's fine. What happens is if we believe that to be true in real life. And part of the challenge that we're experiencing is that we believing that people have these entrenched positions that we now are fearful. We're scared. We're scared of having conversations. We're scared of talking to people. We're scared of challenge. We're scared of being uncomfortable. And I think safe spaces are incredibly important, but they are not a universal right at all times. You can choose to have a safe space, and my safe space can be created, but at times I have to leave that safe space in order to have conversations, and I have to be ready for those conversations. So we mustn't lose sight of the need to have good discussions and good conversations. That doesn't mean that no platform is, is, is invalid. And no platform is a bit of a myth. So when I was at Oxford in 1998-99, the Oxford Union, who was the rival group to the student unions, so the student union were the scruffy jeans, the union were the posh suits, right? That's kind of a bit of weird Oxford law to, to give you insight into. Every year, the Oxford Union would invite someone controversial. And every year, the student union would go, you shouldn't be giving your platform to someone controversial. And they'd go, yeah, well, we can give someone to someone controversial. And we'd go, no, you shouldn't. And they'd go, yeah, we should. And then the speaker event would go ahead, and we'd all be outraged. And so the kind of like, should universities give a platform to controversial speakers? Is this a new idea? No, it's not. I think Socrates had something to say about it. OK, so first of all, <laughs> let's all just presume this is not a new discussion. The problem with Oxford Union giving controversial speakers a stage is that the Oxford Union is a highly respected institution and can be choosy about who it gives its platform to. That is not the same as no platforming. We can be discerning about who we give our platforms to. We can be discerning about the conditions in which we invite people into these spaces. But then how we work with those people and on what terms and in what tone becomes incredibly important. So what I've seen over the last 14 years, over the last 38 years, um, certainly since, since I was 13, is a real anxiety about how to achieve social change, but a miraculous social change has happened in the United Kingdom. You know, we have the best rights in the world for lesbian and gay people, but it is a particular type of right. It is a legal right that is quite vulnerable, can always be taken away, and the respect we hold for each other is quite tenuous. We like gay people if they're good gays. We like the boys who are not too camp, who are not too obviously gay, who are quite fun to be around, um, but certainly are not too explicit. We don't want them to be too sexual. We certainly don't want to know too much about their lives. We like the lesbians if they're funny, but not too butch. And bi people just don't make much sense. We like trans people if they're quite convincing. <laughs> and what we don't understand about convincing is that that's linked, to po that's linked to affluence, that's linked to your ability and access to achieve the treatment you want. That's about the age in which you achieve treatment. We don't understand that that's about class. That's an observation about class. So we like our nice trans people. We like our nice... That's why we like trans men better than trans women, because they're more convincing. We like nice gay boys. We like nice gay girls. Non-binary, 
don't get it at all, that all seems a bit of a fad. We like things neat. We like our good immigrants. We like black women who are not too angry. We like women who basically will do their job but not be too pushy and take their maternity leave at an appropriate time for the business. You know, we don't like people being uncomfortable. And I think that what we're seeing is a, a community, a nation, not just in terms of LGBT, who are angry and uncomfortable. And if the Brexit vote is not the greatest indication of a nation that is angry, I don't know what is. And there are many, many reasons people voted for Brexit and would continue to vote for Brexit, but people are not being seen and people are not being heard. So if Stonewall's taught us anything, it is about working with patience, with gentle hands, nudging people in the right direction, standing very firm in our convictions, standing with communities who are ostracised and marginalised, even when it's difficult to do so. And as a leader, what I've learned is that it's not all about me. It, I can be wrong, and the more space I can create for other people to find their voice, that's the most important thing I can do. So my, my leaving message to you would be that if you have any power whatsoever, think about how you can share it. My second point would be that you have a degree of influence by the fact that you're in this room. You, know, you are able to be here. Find two people who have less power than you. Go and mentor them. Go and find them. Go, and go to your local youth group and pick and talk to them. Find people with less power than you and help them find their power. Help them vote. Help them register to vote. Do something to share your power and think differently. And my third message would be kind to each other and see anger for what it is and not as an agent for change. Thank you very much. Okay. Um... Right, well, I'm now in the position of power, just for a few minutes, uh, but I am going to share it with you all. We have about 15 minutes uh, for questions to Ruth, please. There are some roving microphones, um, so who'd like to kick off? Right. Blue jumper at the back. We'll make you walk right up the stairs first. <coughs> Thank you, that was great. I've got a 13-year-old daughter. She's a voracious reader. What sort of books would you recommend? <laughs> she happens to be gay. That's a really good question, and I'm a bit out of the loop these days because, because all, all my go-to queer fiction involves dragons and, and wizards because they're, they're the best metaphors for otherness going. Um, anything by Juno Dawson is really good these days. Damien Barr. Uh, there's, some really, there's a really good website. On our website, there's a good book list of all the books that are out there. I mean, I think that Jeanette Winterson continues to be the single most important author in my life. And I, but I did English literature as a degree, so I should offer a disclaimer. Um, Julian of Norwich is also big, big important to me. Medieval nun, um, got, a, got a lot of airtime when she wasn't supposed to. Didn't really get into the lesbian thing, but certainly had a lot to say about sin. Very interesting. Um, so, but I think everything Jeanette Winterson has ever written is, is pretty incredible. Um, and I think looking at some of the Juno Dawson stuff and looking at our website for DTs, just don't go near Well of Loneliness until she's at least 20. Like, because basically, it, it takes a bit of getting used to. But I'm sure there are other people in the room who know good books, but, but everything by Winterson, devour. And get her to look at Stonewall Youth website and get her to come along to some of our stuff. Question to Green Jumper. 
I'm just going to make you walk around the longest way. <laughs> but also, the fact that you are loving your 13-year-old daughter is incredible. So thank you for being a good mum. Good evening. That was fantastic and um, resonated with a lot of your story. I actually set up a business called Women of a Certain State four years ago because menopause in the workplace is, is just a topic that is coming to the fore at long last. Yeah. But it's something I suffered through personally. And a big part of that is going out and educating at schools, but also educating organisations. And what I wanted to ask you really was, when you were starting to approach organisations to work with them, what would your th top tips be to do that? Yep. So um, I'm really pleased you're doing that, and my partner is, is very, very, very pleased, and as her partner, I'm very, very, very pleased that <laughs> people other than in our little small home are talking about menopause. Um, and and as, a, as childless lesbians, it's always a very interesting moment, menopause. You kind of go, oh, my God, I can't have children anymore. And I'm like, well, did you want children? It's like, no. It's like, okay, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do with that. I'm sorry. Um, so that's just an aside. Uh, we're, we're live streaming, aren't we? I should be careful. Um, <laughs> Businesses need to hear the business case, and and so Stonewall we have we have a motto in Stonewall which is called we match the client. Uh, so so we we adapt how we look and we adapt how we talk for the the, the short time in which we are talking to them. And I, I tend to these days work with the clients who are on a journey um, and are at a kind of a dark end of things. Or I do a lot with security services. They're they're very 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 good, um, and football clubs are in a different place. You know so that's. And I think what we always do is find the economic case. So, so how do you ensure diverse teams? And I think, I think where people are at is that they understand the need to keep people working and working well and keep them loyal. Uh, the magic moment comes when we get them to understand that actually having those different perspectives and enabling those different perspectives to be shared leads to better business outcomes. And that, that takes longer. So a lot of people are still at the we need to make sure that we have a diverse group of people and we need to make sure that those people feel happy. And that's not quite the same as we need to be enabling everybody to be able to bring their whole influence to bear in whatever way they want. And it's, 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 a, it's a subtle distinction and people struggle with that. But keep it all business focused, not about feelings, and that's how you get in the door. But it takes, it takes five years. So from organisations we work with, from the first meeting... It takes five years to get into our top 100. That's how long it takes for them to do the work. And we, we make it hard for them. And we also make the index harder every three years. We up the game every three years. So it's about continuing learning and making it harder every time. Hi, Hi. that was fab, thanks. Thank you. My partner is biotransition, is how she always puts it. Um, but so do you think the GRA is actually going to go ahead and when? Okay, so let's, let's do a crash course on GRA for everyone in the room. So the GRA is the Gender Recognition Act. The Gender Recognition Act was introduced in 2004 with literally no controversy because nobody noticed it. Gender Recognition Act enables people to fully transition and get a new certificate. You are not required to have a certificate. Many, many trans people don't have a certificate. The criteria to receive a certificate is that you have to what's called live in role for two years. Myth number one, people think you have to have lots of different surgery in order to get your certificate. You don't. You just have to live in role and, be, and mean it and live in role for two years. 
You then send a pack of information to a group of people who you never meet, who decide whether you're boy enough or girl enough to receive a new certificate. You get your certificate, you frame it, you put it on your loo wall, nobody ever asks for it, nobody sees it. That is the Gender Recognition Act, okay? That's how exciting it is. In Ireland and Malta and Argentina and Norway and Iceland, they say you can apply for that certificate without having to present a pack of information to people who you never meet and having done it meaningfully for two years. You can say, do you know what? I know exactly what I'm doing. Thank you very much. I would like a new certificate to go on my toilet wall without having to pay a fee and go through a procedure. That seems to be really controversial. Um, so, uh, what happened was uh, enter stage left Brexit, enter stage left four equalities ministers in one year, um, and an appetite from the government here to really do the best it can do. So we are about to ostracise ourselves from Europe. I have no view on that, but we, we, could, be, we, could, be the, um, we could be the best in the world, except we're not as good uh, on, on trans issues. We've got great LGB legislation, not so good um, trans legislation. So the government said, well, let's do the trans legislation. Then they went, shall we do it, shall we not do it? So then there was a consultation. And then Fleet Street went, yeah, but what about when you've got someone trans on a Tuesday who might want to play football, but only if they basically had that hormone, like, what do you do about them? So, well, well, we can talk about that all night, but that's nothing to do with the Gender Recognition Act or a Gender Recognition Certificate, so, so fine. So there was a lot of confusion, a lot of hurt. Do I think there will be a new Gender Recognition Act? Yes, I do. When will that be? I don't know, but all three major parties are supporting it. If we have a general election, I suspect it will be in the manifestos, um, but it's about parliamentary time. I think that people have been surprised by the level of confusion about what the Gender Recognition Act actually means. And, but what it's highlighted is the absolute lack of knowledge about trans people and the, the level of hatred levied against trans people by the media is the like of which I have never seen in my 14 years at Stonewall. And I did gay Catholic adoptions, right? So <laughs> I, you know, I'm not unfamiliar with controversial stuff. The personal abuse I've received on Twitter is nothing like I've ever seen in my entire career. And the, the impact that has on individual lives and trans people's confidence and ability to live their life is of grave concern. Uh, me and my partner have been questioned more about our gender in the last year than ever before. Um, so we're both women and we identify as women and we present as women and we were in Liberty the other, the other week and someone came in and went, you're in the wrong toilets. We went, no, no, completely understandable. We've got short hair, but I promise you we're in the right toilets. Right? So we're very British about it, very polite about it. <laughs> and um, she followed us out and went, I'm really sorry, we're, I'm really embarrassed. And we're like, no, no, it's absolutely fine. It's absolutely fine. It's really fine. We're definitely going. <laughs> um, and she said, have you thought about growing your hair? And we were like... <laughs> There is something, there is an anxiety about gender and gender presentation and gender identity that is sending people a little bit loopy. And actually what it's about is people being able to present and live as they want. So when the Archbishop of Canterbury said, boys can wear tiaras, that was the most feminist, inclusive, wonderful thing to say at all. It was interpreted as, Archbishop of Canterbury thinks kids are trans. It's like, no, he just thinks kids can wear tiaras. My son wants to dress up as Elsa, what should I do? Buy an Elsa costume. You know, like we can all just relax a little bit about this. So there's a whole amount of tension and please give my best regards to your partner because it's not an easy time. Questions?
We've got, yeah, we've got some over there. Don't worry. I'll come to you next, promise. Hello. Hello. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Um, really interesting what you were saying. I'm uh, engaged in launching a, um, a diversity and inclusion, um, well, not forum, but uh, I movement within the profession. I'm a chartered accountant. Isn't this still on? Yeah. It's still in on. this particular we region, uh, we're really looking to look to uh, to change the profession or to yeah. make more uh, uh, this rather sort of conservative um, uh, activity uh, become more inclusive. And you talked really much about um, three things here. You said power, share it, two diversity is not just about uh, having people different to us on the surface, and the third one is be kind to each other. Now. Um, when dealing with organisations that ha do have great power and are, have been very conservative in the past and have always employed people that look like us and yep. like us, how, how, how would you go about that? Because I'm, I'm interested, you've been working with, with, uh, uh, with, the, with the armed services and with the police and with other sort of very establishment type organisations. So it'd be interesting in your views. And it is, it is a similar message, but sometimes I use different language, if I'm honest. Um, but, the, but the message is the same. And I think that, um, so with the, the Navy, for example, um, the Navy, I was talking to the Navy the, the other week, and they absolutely rely on chain of command. So they do not want diversity of thought at some crucial moments. They want 100 people who are going to do exactly what they're told. And what's the, the problem with the Navy is they've gone, well, we need more diverse people. It's like, Why? Why do you need more diverse people? Because really, do you just need 100 people who are going to do exactly what they're told? And, are you, and they said, well, we, there's just not enough uh, white people to recruit. There's not enough white young men who want to do what they're told. So we need to be wider. It's like, well, at least that's honest. At least we're now having an honest conversation about what diversity is about for you. It is not about having 100 millennial thinkers going, well, I don't know, but what is the nature of war? You know, so, so getting to the heart of what their mission is is really important. So somewhere like EY, which is a big accountancy, their job is to make money. And there is nothing wrong with that. How do they make money? They have people doing the best work they can, making the best connections with clients, talking in the best language and doing the right... You need people who is able to notice and recognise difference in your customers in order to achieve a better sale, in order to build that rapport. Businesses run on relationships. And if everybody is, uh, is too uptight and keeping part of themselves hidden, then that has an impact. So when I talk, I talk to, um, I do a lot of allies work, and people who keep secrets, their performance is, is affected. And I'm not talking just LGBT stuff, but that can be part of this. A person who's going through a major complicated divorce and has been an absolute pain to work with and terrible to his team and hasn't been able to say, do you know what, I've actually been having a really hard time. His performance is affected, his team's performances are affected. So businesses benefit when people are able to be more honest about what is happening in their lives. And when you have to lie about your partner or muddle up the pronoun, it gets in the way. So I had a friend once who was, who was a, a doctor and went to a different bit of doctoring every quarter or whatever. And every quarter would spend kind of a good few weeks going, can I tell them my partner's the same sex? What will they think? Will they judge me? It's like you missed the first week of induction. You don't know where the toilets are because you've been so worried about this stuff. So we know 
But keeping part of yourself hidden has an impact on business, has an impact on the ability to build relationships, and has an impact on connection with the workplace. We know those things to be true. And if accountancy is truly to be able to serve an increasingly diverse audience, they have to be able to tune into their own diversity. Because someone like our young entrepreneurs here are going to meet accountants, and if they meet someone who is not understanding any of it, they're going to actually, I'm going to go choose that. I'm going to go and work with that zippy young woman over there who's running her own business and bringing up three kids and working part time because that's the button that suits her. So the consumer wants different ways of working as well. So it's really about finding that language. But within that comes understanding your power, sharing that power, and being kind to each other. Because often when people are frightened about that difference, they get aggressive and they get hostile. And actually, kindness and compassion and treating people like human beings goes a huge long way. Saying to someone, I'm sorry, what, what pronouns would you prefer me to use is much, much better than going, well, I'm not really sure about all this trans stuff, are you? So, you know, good human decency, one could almost put, put a religious spin on it. Treating people well is a good thing to do, and that's why I'm a big fan of kindness. There was a question over there, somebody with great patience. Um, we work in a employee engagement and diversity and inclusion is quite a hot topic with a lot of our clients at the moment. Um, so I really liked your comments about creating a safe space for people to find their voice. Because one of the um, frustrations I found with talking to clients is that they tend to have put lots of policies in place and they've kind of ticked lots of boxes, but actually there's not very much progression going on. Yeah. So I wondered if you had a good example of an organisation you've worked with who's done a really good job of creating um, being able to share that power and allowing people to find their voice and what sort of size organization big or little big <laughs> yeah so so it big is different it's di yeah big corporations are different from little organizations stone was yeah. a little organization we're 164 staff um, we've got um, an issue in that we have we don't attract staff from black asian and minority ethnic backgrounds we are perceived to be a white organization we have to take responsibility for that the easy thing to do would have gone, right, we're all having some BAME training and you're all going to learn <laughs> and then we're going to have some policies and we're going to put that on our website. Yeah. And I said, no. So we're doing a three-year programme and we've brought people in for three years. And the first year was spent just with our BAME staff, uh, our black, Asian and minority ethnic staff, finding out about their issues, the issues they were experiencing in Stonewall. The end of that year, they came to me and went, these are the issues. Our BAME staff are more empowered to have those conversations with me. Stage two is going to be about rolling out those messages to the rest of the organisation and the senior management team. Year three is going to be about integrating that into our entire work plan. And it will take three years. And if I think it can be done in a week, I'm wrong. So part of the big thing is for people to understand this is about culture change. It is not a DNI thing over here. So most big corporations, in the same way that Stonewall would fail, just think they can do DNI. Mm. Right, so we've, 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 got, we've got Margaret... She's back from mat leave. She wants to come back two days a week. We're going to give her women to solve. And uh, I think it's probably about women being more assertive, isn't it? And so there's a real... It's got to be owned by the very top of the organisation. It's got to be about culture. That's why the most cultural work, we don't talk about diversity and inclusion at all. We talk about mission. We talk about purpose. We talk about what's the organisation for and how, who your staff are and how your staff feel make a difference to that bottom line, whatever that bottom line is. Whether it is keeping more patients alive, whether it is protecting the country, whether it is generating more sales for um, retail bankers, right? Whatever it is, what is your purpose and why is inclusion important to that? So when we talk to MI5, the reason why MI5 is one of our best employers is not because they said, we better do a bit of DNI, is because they said, our job is to keep the country safe. 
Who do we need to employ to keep the country safe? We cannot have... Uh, we used to fire gay staff for being gay. We used to not recruit them because in case they were blackmailed. We've got staff who are not out. We've got people who we should be talking to who might be gay and might have things to tell us about their community who are not talking to our gay staff. We've got women who were told they could only be secretaries. So we've got a very fixed type of person who's basically doing the hard work. We cannot keep the country safe on that basis. Never did they go... Well, DNI policy, we better basically... That wasn't their starting point. So your starting point has to be linked to your mission. And then there are techniques and there are strategies, and Stonewall's got a great plan and we can take you through it, but unless it is integrated into your mission, unless UWE is asking the question, how can we get the best students doing the best work? And higher education is the best example of this. It is, the, it is an institution, not UWE. UWE is great at this, but it, of course... <laughs> but it's a, it's a sector that presumes it's meritocratic. It's a sector that presumes it transcends diversity and inclusion and doesn't realise that its main asset, its main purpose, is to educate people, and they're only skimming this many people because of the way in which they are presented and marketed, because they presume a meritocratic system. And they value someone who's got four A-levels and a private tutor more than they value the kid who's worked around a kitchen table with four brothers and sisters and has got two, two GCSEs and one A-level. And that kid who's got two GCSEs and one A-level might have far more potential and be far brighter than that person who's got four A-levels. And we have no method whatsoever in this country for assessing that. And we think we're meritocratic. That, you know, so we, that, that is failing core mission. So we've got to link it back to core mission. I think we've only got time for one more question before we've got some refreshments. Who'd like to... Here we go. Oh, two, two. Shall we take two? I'll be quick. I'm sorry. We'll take two. Both questions over there on the right. No, left. Right. My left, your right. <laughs> so so um, I'm a... I'm a gay, sometimes female-presenting, non-binary person. Uh, I'm LGBT officer at the college I work for, and I'm also a youth leader at a very strict Pentecostal church. And my, my question is, um, when you're talking to, to religious organisations about, about LGBT issues, uh, how do you go about it in a sensitive way that's not likely to get them um, with their knickers in a twist, basically. Yeah, it's, it's a good, easy question for the last note. So. <laughs> yeah. It's a brilliant question, and well done for all you're doing, because it takes courage to kind of exist in those spaces. So I think that the work I do with churches has been incredibly important to me personally. Um, I think that it's talking a lot... Um, I'll try and be brief, but when, when I became CEO, when I, was, when I was a more junior member of staff, I was on the press phone in the middle of the night because we used to pass it round when we were smaller. And someone called, one of the gay press called me and said, um, they're closing down Catholic masses, just don't have anything to say about that. And I said, well, LGBT masses are really important to some parts of the LGBT community. And they said, well, are there any gay Catholics? And I said, yeah, I'm a gay Catholic. So the, the article said, Deputy Director of Public Affairs, Ruth Hunt, practicing Catholic things. Nobody cares about that. CEO of Stonewall practicing Catholic, that was really bad. So the headline on the Independent when I became chief exec was practicing Catholic becomes CEO of Stonewall. And I was suddenly, hold on a minute, yeah, I'm not articulate enough. I don't have the translation of Leviticus in the Hebrew and what that means. And I, I don't have the voice. I don't have the, the message. I don't have the way of talking about this stuff. I have a faith, but it's private and it's been very personally held. So I had to go on a bit of a spiritual journey myself to say, what, what is needed of me, what is expected of me, and what role can I actually play? And what I, what I found was that I talk a lot about people, I talk a lot about compassion, 
I talk a lot about the role of the church in helping people find God, not dissuade them from God, that LGBT communities are are finding faith of all sorts of denominations despite organised religion, not because of organised religion, and that's a fundamental mission fail. I talk about love thy neighbour. I talk about the fact that there is a lot in biblical texts and equivalent that would suggest a lot of rules. And I also suggest that the, the discomfort around LGBT issues in the Christian faith in particular is a complete distraction. And actually what the Christian church should be talking about, the Church of England in particular, is the split of the Anglican Communion. And they are talking about LGBT issues as a way of having that argument by proxy. And it is deeply disrespectful to LGBT communities who are attempting to navigate their way through a faith community to be kicked around in that way, when actually they should be having a conversation about the role of the Church of England in an international context. I mean, that goes down well. So there's, there's, there's kind of there's different ways of talking about these issues, but humanising it and centering it in the individual and the person's relationship with God, if they have one, is... is always the position to take and don't worry because you'll never know as much about Leviticus as they do so don't even try <laughs> right one final question you've been very patient thank you hello um, thank you for your talk it was really interesting um, I just have a short question actually um, I work in, in financial advice for a large bank uh, also of um, our employee-led network for LGBT plus colleagues and customers. Um, and sometimes in my line of business, we come across clients who, um, due to their own beliefs, don't want to meet up or deal with a banker or a wealth manager that um, is identifies as gay or is from a BAME background. Um, this goes completely against our core, core values. Um, how would you suggest we approach these clients who wish to not deal with, with us in that respect? Um, so the question was for, for clients who don't want to work with someone who's LGBT, or so, so they've got customers and the customer says, I don't want to work with someone BAME, I don't want to work with someone LGBT, I only want to work with that white guy, can I have him please? What do you do about that? And it's a question that comes up a lot for the NHS, and the NHS is unequivocal. You know, you're going to be treated by that black nurse, and if you don't like it, you can leave. And from a corporate perspective, it has to be absolutely the same. And there is no wriggle room. And IBM do this very well. IBM have always said, this is your client account manager. If you do not want them, you can take your business elsewhere. And if everybody does that, then those attitudes will change. And I find that when, when someone is in an acute um, medical emergency, they tend not to mind that that black gay man <laughs> is the one stitching up their brain's because they've spewed them all, you know. So I think we've got to be very clear. And I think that people are more ambiguous about LGBT. They feel a bit more conflicted about it. Um, but actually, if your line is clear on gender, your line is clear on race, your line should also be clear on LGBT issues. And there, isn't, there is no room in the 21st century for people to pick and choose based on their prejudices and bigotry. We are not America. <laughs> For more information on the Bristol Lectures series, including details on how you can attend, visit uwe.ac.uk forward slash Bristol Lectures or follow the hashtag Bristol Lectures.